Hi, I'm Andreas Lapakis, the editor-in-chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today I'm talking with uh, Drs. Ted Wien and Jeffrey Habert, two of the authors of a clinical practice guideline on acetylsalic acid, or aspirin, for the prevention of vascular events. The guidelines published in the CMAJ. So welcome to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So why don't we start maybe just uh, with a little uh, background of each from each of you. Jeffrey, tell us uh, who you are and uh, how you came to be involved in the guidelines. I'm a family physician in North Toronto. I spend a lot of my time in physician education, and I'm the co-chair of Clinical Guides at Thrombosis Canada, and was also involved on the secondary stroke prevention guidelines that were published in 2017. So I have a special interest in thrombosis and education. Okay. I'm a stroke neurologist where I work at the Stroke Prevention Clinic at the Montreal General Hospital in Montreal at McGill University. I've been actively involved in stroke education, community education my entire career. I'm the former chair of the Stroke Prevention Guidelines in conjunction uh, working with Jeff. And I'm currently the chair of the writing group of this new guideline of the use of acetylsilic acid for the prevention of vascular events. So since you have the floor, maybe just tell us, when I read the guideline, it struck me as being really two guidelines, one focused on uh, aspirin secondary prevention and, and the other on aspirin and primary prevention. So tell us why there was uh, a need for this guideline at this time. I think in medicine, we're always learning, we're always reassessing, and we're always striving to make things better. Uh, in light of three major new trials and three new meta-analyses uh, that made the evidence very clear that there was a need for change, we felt it was prudent to bring this to the attention of the public. I think it's important to note uh, some of the old aspirin recommendations are based on studies that were done in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, with smaller populations uh, that were, are currently used in the present study. So there's been lots of changes in medicine over the years. And given these trials with an almost universal message, uh, we felt it was essential to bring this message to the Canadian public. And am I right that one message that hasn't changed is that aspirin uh, should be used for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular events? Absolutely. Uh, this was initially a primary prevention guideline, but we included secondary prevention because the data still strongly supports the use of aspirin for secondary prevention. Uh, we did not want the public to be confused between primary and secondary prevention, nor healthcare providers either. And that's why we linked the two together to try to distinguish between these two entities so that people who clearly require aspirin for secondary prevention make sure that they stay on the medication. Uh, I've had a number of phone calls from patients as well as physicians who've confused these two with people with prior MIs or strokes who are saying, should we stop our medication because we read that aspirin is not good. And that is not the case. And that's why we're highlighting both in this new guideline. And so just to be clear, when we talk about secondary prevention, we're talking about someone who's had a transient ischemic attack or a mini stroke or a stroke or you said MI, which stands for myocardial infarction or heart attack. So anybody that's had one of those events, uh, the evidence is just clear that uh, aspirin should be used because it's effective and its benefits outweigh its risk. And it also happens to be a very cheap medication, right? Absolutely. And I would add to that list of symptomatic vascular disease, uh, peripheral vascular disease, uh, where aspirin is also shown to be efficacious uh, when an individual is symptomatic from that. 
So let's go then on, uh, and maybe um, Jeff, to you. Um, you know, primary prevention, I think, is is largely in the realm of, uh, the f- of family physicians and nurse practitioners. So tell us what the new guidance around the use of aspirin and people who have not had one of these aspirin events is. I mean, you know, before I go into that, I want to say that Heart and Stroke recently did a survey. And it was interesting because we estimate about 5 million Canadians have been told by their family doctors to take aspirin. And out of that 5 million, 60% are taking it. But we also know about 2.4 million Canadians are taking aspirin on their own. And I think this guideline will speak to them because the guideline states that ASA is no longer recommended for the primary prevention in individuals without a history of symptomatic, what we just talked about, so symptomatic cardiovascular disease, stroke, or peripheral artery disease. And the reason we said that is we've now shown from what Ted just mentioned with the three trials and the three meta-analysis that the harms of ASA could potentially outweigh the benefits. And we need to educate Canadians in that regard because it's unlike other medications where our patients can walk into the pharmacy and buy aspirin. And I could have a patient that I've been seeing for 20 or 25 years, and I may not have an idea that they're taking it. And and this survey that was done really speaks to that. And I think myself and other primary care physicians need to now start asking, are you taking aspirin? You said that the harms may outweigh the benefits. Is it may or do they outweigh the benefits? Well, it depends on which trial you're talking about. So overall, the trials have suggested that the risk of bleeding outweighs the benefit of taking aspirin. There is one trial in diabetics called ASCEND, where there was a benefit seen in diabetics taking aspirin, and the benefit was very similar to the risk. So I think that's one area where me as a family physician would say to my patients, we need to have this discussion. But the classic patient, so the 54-year-old male who has no real risk factors, that would be the patient that shouldn't be taking aspirin in my world. So let me ask you a rather personal question. Uh, I'm a 66-year-old guy who has uh, hypertension, which is well-controlled, and has an elevated cholesterol. Should I be taking aspirin? So in my practice, I would advise you not to take aspirin. Even though I presumably have a higher risk of stroke or heart attack than a 66-year-old guy without my risk factors. And and when you talk about the, the risk of bleeding, I think the, just to let people know, I think the most common major bleed in people on aspirin is, I think, bleeding from their stomach or from an ulcer. But the one that we all fear as doctors and as patients is bleeding into our brain, which is almost always devastating. So uh, that, you know, the, the downsides of that uh, on aspirin outweigh the the benefits, even in someone like me who would have a higher risk of having a heart attack than someone who doesn't have high blood pressure or high cholesterol, right? Exactly right. And and actually, you are the patient that was actually studied. Like you're about the average age of the trials. You're the guy that was studied in the trials and the studies showed that your risk of bleeding was quite significant and the benefit was minimal. I would just add to that that you would have been an ideal candidate for the ASPRI trial. 
where individuals over the age of 65 or 70 were admitted with several vascular risk factors. And in that trial, really showed no benefit. There was um, no significant uh, difference in terms of cardiovascular protection, but there was a 38% increase in subsequent major bleeds. I think it's really important to note, though, that there's still a little bit of a positive data on older individuals over 65. And I think um, in the piece uh, in our article, it's addressed there about some of the uh, uncertainties on other populations that could be sub-studied in the future to help delineate uh, if we can fine-tune this therapy even better as to who may or may not benefit. But right now, in two of three meta-analyses, absolutely uh, no benefit. And in one meta-analysis where they did find a slight benefit in terms of decreasing cardiovascular outcomes, it was totally offset by an increase in major bleeding. And to give you just the numbers needed to treat in terms of vascular protection was around 265 patients needed to be treated to prevent one cardiovascular outcome, but the number needed to harm was 210. Uh, So that's really where we don't see the benefit of continuing. I think the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage is also a concern. I think individuals uh, in another meta-analysis done by Huang and colleagues showed that aspirin was associated with an increased risk of intracranial bleeding, a 37% increased risk of bleeding uh, in all people merged together. I think we've emphasized the increased risk of bleeding on aspirin. When we say things like a 30 to 37% increase, I'm just wanting to make sure that patients that may be listening to this realize that that 30% increase is, is on the basis of a small baseline risk. I don't want people to leave this thinking that, oh my God, if I take aspirin, like I have a massive risk of having a bleed. The risk of bleeding uh, from aspirin in terms of bleeding into the brain is is relatively small, uh, but individuals with aspirin are at a slightly higher risk, uh, but the absolute risk of bleeding with this is, is less than a percent if you look at the difference between the two groups. We've seen that if you treat 265 people with aspirin, you will prevent one event, prevent a heart attack, a stroke, or cardiovascular death. But you actually only need to treat 210 to get one adverse major bleeding event. So it appears that the bleeding outweighs the benefit in this case. I think the bottom line is intracranial bleeding, the risk is, is less than a percent. So one area that you mentioned in your guideline that might be a bit controversial is in uh, people that you call them people with asymptomatic atherosclerosis, where you indicated that, as I read your guideline, that it wasn't clear whether those people should be on aspirin or not. Ted, do you want to talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think the research answers a lot of the questions, but it doesn't necessarily answer all of the questions very clearly. I think uh, the asymptomatic atherosclerotic group remains a controversial group of individuals with there being no clear-cut guidance on how to make decisions in this population. There's a small study looking at people with asymptomatic carotid artery disease um, where they were just found to have fatty plaque in their carotid artery, but have never had any symptoms, so they would be considered asymptomatic from this. This small study didn't show any benefit from placing them on aspirin, but we don't have a large number of individuals that have been uh, studied with this. 
And I think this brings up a really important uh, aspect of modern medical care, which is shared decision-making, where the um, patient or the individual with the uh, atherosclerosis as well as the healthcare provider really need to uh, discuss all aspects of healthcare to see what would be the ideal therapy for this um, population. So we strongly encourage dialogue and interaction between healthcare providers and their patients in order to make shared decision-making, and this is the ideal scenario where that will need to occur. So just to make sure I understand this, I probably have, or I almost certainly have, asymptomatic atherosclerosis in my carotid artery. You're talking about someone that's actually had an imaging study of their coronary arteries or their carotids and has actually shown on those imaging studies to have atherosclerosis. Is that right? Or their legs. So these are individuals that, for whatever reason, uh, went for any test, either by accident or because a physician was just doing a general screen, which some uh, clinics will just do global vascular evaluations of people. And they find individuals who have some plaque or some fat in the arteries, in their carotid artery, uh, maybe in their coronary artery or in their legs. And this is a group of individuals that we just don't have enough data on right now to fully uh, guide individuals based on evidence-based medicine here. And this is where shared decision-making between the pros and cons of therapy uh, should be uh, discussed. So I, I think an important point from our primary care perspective is aspirin's really important, but it's not all about aspirin. So from my perspective, I want to look at lifestyle interventions that we know work, like exercise and diet. We know that if you're high risk, we have lots of benefits shown for ACE inhibitors and ARBs and statins. So I would want to make sure that all the other things are optimized, and then we can have this discussion on the pros and cons of aspirin. But let's not forget about lifestyle ACEs and ARBs and statins that we've been using for decades. Can you just say what ACEs, ARBs, and statins are? Yeah, so ACEs are ACE inhibitors, a type of blood pressure medication that we also use in heart disease, and ARBs are angioretensin blockers which are also a type of antihypertensive that we use for people with high blood pressure and heart disease and also protects the kidneys. So those are probably the most commonly used groups of blood pressure medications in this country. And, and we use them and we have evidence for using them because we can show that they reduce cardiovascular mortality. We also have evidence for statins in high-risk patients. Um, and, and hence, the current lipid guidelines say that if you're over the age of 50 and you're hypertensive and we plug you into a Framingham risk calculator and you come out at high risk or even moderate risk, that we should be treating you with a statin to, re- to reduce your LDL to 2.0. So I would optimize all of that because we have some evidence and I would enforce the importance of exercise and proper diet. And we can have the aspirin discussion, but what we're saying now is that most of the current data would would lean me against it, although the group that you just asked about is certainly controversial because, as Ted said, we don't have the evidence. Um, I would just like to add to what Jeff just said, because I don't want uh, the world to look at aspirin as this magical pill that cures all woes. And if we look at the old data, aspirin reduced the risk of cardiovascular events anywhere from 12 to 20 or maybe even 25 percent. 
But as Jeff just said, you know, living that healthy lifestyle is probably the most effective therapy we have in decreasing subsequent cardiovascular events. There are studies showing that if you control your blood pressure, you exercise for more than 150 minutes per week, that you stop smoking and nowadays be cautious with vaping should be added, you eat a healthy diet, that the benefit of doing that reduces your risk of having a cardiovascular event by 80%. So I, I think the big point here is that there's a lot of other things we can do to prevent cardiovascular disease, and we shouldn't look for this magic pill because your lifestyle really has the biggest impact on protecting you long-term. Is it really? I've not heard of anything that decreases my risk of having a heart attack by 80%. So if you look at the interstroke and the interheart studies, and there's another wonderful study by Chuve, C-H-I-U-V-E, and colleagues, um, that stroke, uh, stroke rate in the Chuve study was diminished by 80% in women and 70% uh, in men who followed those four lifestyle changes. So they were at much lower risk to having cardiovascular events. And I think an important point to realize is that, I mean, aspirin is over the counter. It should not be equated to a vitamin. It is not a vitamin. It has risks. I mean, some vitamins actually have risks also, but people need to be educated. And I think these guidelines will help educate Canadians on the benefits and potential risks of aspirin so that People don't just walk into the store and buy their aspirin. I, I can't tell you how many times a day people come in and tell me their their friend, their mother, their hairdresser told them to take aspirin. You talked about in the guideline stopping aspirin and uh, so to circle back to me, I was taking aspirin and then I saw the first of those large trials and I stopped and I stopped just suddenly. I just stopped the drug. Is that the way people should stop? In my world, if you had come to me and with everything you've told me, we'd have the discussion and I would say, I believe in your case that you probably should stop aspirin because of the risks we talked about. But the waters get a little bit more muddy if, you, if you've been on it with asymptomatic atherosclerosis or if you have diabetes because we have the ASCEND trial suggesting there may be some benefits despite a slightly higher risk. We'd have to have that discussion together about the risks and benefits and what's your risk of bleeding. But in in your case, which is the majority of what we'll see, so there was a trial called ARRIVE and, and Ted mentioned Esprit, you're that guy. You're the guy with two to four risk factors. You're over the age of 55. There was no benefit found in someone like you. But if you had additional risk factors like asymptomatic atherosclerosis, or diabetes, we would have to have that discussion. We had that discussion. We decided to stop. There's no, there's no titrating here. You just stop, right? Yes, I would just stop. I would just stop also. I, I think one of the concerns is, is there any rebound effect from stopping aspirin long-term? And again, we, we don't have any data on that, and that would be the only concern. But like Jeff just said, I, I would just stop the aspirin. That's the biggest question that's going to come from our patients is what do I do now? And I think we need to look at three types of patients. There's the clearly secondaries with symptomatic disease, like Ted mentioned. There's the second patient, which is you, the one that has multiple risk factors, but hasn't been found to have diabetes or asymptomatic atherosclerosis. And then there's the third and fourth ones with asymptomatic atherosclerosis and diabetes. So 
there's three or four different patients, but I honestly believe the majority will either be clear secondaries or clear or clear multiple risk factors. So yes, there are exceptions for which we lack good data, but I think these guidelines will help clarify that in the minds of physicians and most Canadians. Before we stop, whether we could sort of end with, you know, summarizing succinctly, you know, the secondary prevention and the primary prevention message aimed at patients. So I think the key messages are as follows. Uh, Individuals who've had a history of heart attack, stroke, or symptomatic peripheral artery disease, which is a problem with the artery in the legs, should definitely be on aspirin or acetylsalicylic acid. Individuals who've never had a heart attack, never had a stroke, never had what's called a TIA, and have no known symptomatic peripheral artery disease, there's really no indication to take aspirin. This affects one in six Canadians in our country, and while we have easy access to this medication, there's really no medical evidence at the present time to suggest that this is going to be of any significant benefit, and in contrary, may actually increase the risk of several bleeding problems. In light of the new guidelines, I encourage Canadians to consult their physicians to have this discussion about the use of aspirin. So I'd like to thank uh, Drs. Ted Ween and uh, Jeff Habert for talking to me today about this very important topic. Dr. Ween's a neurologist who works in stroke prevention and is also an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Habert is a family physician in Thornhill, Ontario, and an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. To read the Canadian Stroke Best Practice Recommendations on ASA for Prevention of Vascular Events, please visit cmaj.ca. And if you haven't subscribed to CMAJ Podcasts, we highly encourage you to do so on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast app. I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, Editor-in-Chief for the CMAJ. Thanks very much for listening.